everyone and welcome to the pod and the pendulum the show that covers horror franchises one movie and one episode at a time it is a new year and it is time to kick things off with a whole new franchise and for the first time we are going to be exploring one of the foundational series in studios in horror history and it's a title that's approaching the century mark whose importance still resonates and is still being reinterpreted and reimagined to this day. This week, we are kicking off the first of the eight Frankenstein movies from Universal Studios with 1931's Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, starring Colin Clive, Meg Clark, Edward Van Sloan, Dwight Fry, and question mark as the monster. However, I'm not alone. I've assembled a team of mad scientists to raise this episode up from the dead. Up first, we have from the Movies for Life podcast. I, I wrote Movies or Life in my notes here. <laughs> Jesus. I, I think that oh. works, too. It works, too. It works. From the Movies for Life podcast, from Bloody Disgusting, and from Manor Valum, the man who inspired us to go down this road, Mr. Well, Brian Kuyper. The wheel got spun and the wheel spoke. So, the wheel hey, spoke. And, and I got my way, and then I, I thought we were only going to do the first three. Then you said, hey, why don't we do all eight? And I said, I'm in. So Because how could we only do three when there are eight movies, right? Right. That would be disappointing. That, well, I think we so, would be letting the listeners down. Uh, we really would be. Yeah. We really would be. So That ghost of Frankenstein talk, they really want to hear that. I I really can't wait to get to Abbott and Costello. I know. That's going to be a blast. Right? Absolutely. That's be a lot of fun, Absolutely. So. Also with us today from the Spectre Cinema Club, joining us once again, Mr. Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we? Happy New Year. I'm doing fantastic. Uh, always like being in on uh, these first episodes. Uh, I, I love doing the pilots uh, for, for a new series. So, yeah, I'm stoked uh, to do some Frankenstein and uh, see how many of these I can get through with you guys. Staking your claim early, getting it in there early. You always do. You often jump in for those, like, first first ones that we get in for the series. I always that like to do, true. like, a first one and then, like, a middle one and then, mm-hmm. like, one. I, I like to spread them out a little bit. There you go. Yep, spread the love a little bit. But you've brought a friend today. You have brought your co-host along from the Spectre Cinema Club, and he is on with us for the first time, Mr. Garrett McDowell. Garrett, welcome aboard, and how are we, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you all as well. It's an honor to be here and to meet uh, Devon's side piece. <laughs> I feel like every episode he's mentioning he was on Pod the Pendulum, so it's a wonder to meet you all. Uh, meet, uh, meet you all. I'm very happy to uh, be here talking Frankenstein. We've assembled a team. We have like a massive panel of co-hosts, and look, 
I know that like Spectre Cinema Club is first in his heart and first in his mind. So, you know, it is never a matter of this show coming first. But, you know, Mike, we, we I never say no to anyone. Like whenever we put the episodes out there, I'm like, who wants in? And like if if like seven people say like, yeah, I'll jump in. I'm like, all right, we'll figure it out. We'll make it work somehow. So mm-hmm. sometimes to my detriment when it comes to editing the show, <laughs> but the conversations are always fantastic. I'm, so. I'm glad you've uh, accepted that you're my mistress, Mike. Thank you. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I have never been anyone's side piece and it feels kind of nice, kind of naughty. Um, <laughs> I might have to go and, pick myself something up sexy to wear later on who knows Ooh, um, that's on the patreon uh, that would sign be up. <laughs> there you go all right so before we dive into the series proper here i am super excited to talk about this one like i am actually been like thinking about this like all week because we were on holiday and i've been adding notes and reading and watching these movies over and over again and like this is probably the series i've been as we've approached it, like super excited to talk about, but also a little bit nervous because it's one of those movies where I'm like, I really want to get this right. Um, yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> I can't think of anyone better to have by my side, just like we had Ariel for the Saw movies. I can't think of anyone better to have on for Frankenstein by my side than Mr. Brian Kuyper. So, Brian, I usually defer to the guests first when I ask, like, where did you first fall in love with these movies? But I'm going to defer to you first. Okay. Because you, you're a monster kid from way back. Yeah. When did I, you first encounter Frankenstein and fall in love with the big green ghoul? I don't even know. It, it's been oh, so well, long. I mean, I'm it, sorry I asked. Well, well, let me elaborate a little bit. Um, I remember just the look of the creature always sort of being there. I, I, there's not a time that I was not sort of fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember going to like a, it was like an educational store and um, my mom found this activity book that I actually found. I still have it as it turns out um, that uh, had the creature on the cover and uh, had on the inside, the coloring thing for the mon- was the picture at the lakeside, you know, so the scene at the lakeside. Um, and I just kind of, and it had a little synopsis of behind the scenes who Boris Karloff was. And I just kind of became fascinated and obsessed. There's clips of it in weird science that got me really excited. Uh, I saw it on television, I think. Um, we need and, clips of this book in the Slack chat. Just saying. We need, well, we, we, we need pics <laughs> in the Slack. You know it. I'm I'm sure I can find it. It's oh, it's right over here somewhere. Um, but uh, this, um, but then um, let's see here. I uh, so there there was that kind of piqued my attention, and then um, for some reason, my mom got us to watch Young Frankenstein, and I was horribly disappointed um, that Mm -hmm. it it didn't look like the monster, you know? Uh, (laughs) I love that movie now, but at the time I was very disappointed. Peter Boyle looks scary, but for different reasons. Right. (laughs) And um, so finally, we got a VCR when I was, I don't know, six years old, and um, my brother and my mom went to the library, and they brought home, and they said, hey, Brian, we have a surprise for you. And it was Frankenstein. And... Um, from and this was the unrestored version of it, so it's missing certain sections that I'm sure we'll talk about. 
and I immediately fell in love with it. It was probably the first horror movie I saw. It was for sure the first horror movie I saw, but it was also um, the first like old movie I had ever seen. Sure. Uh, besides like The Wizard of Oz on television, which is more accessible for kids. But this was still, I was just enthralled by this movie from beginning to end. Um, I think the fact that it's 70 minutes helps and it moves. Oh, yeah moves like it just blazes along um and has um you know it has a child in it and that's such an important thing and i think it's something i heard recently i thought was really profound was it's this is a great movie to show to kids because it's so so beautifully teaches empathy Mm -hmm. um at such you know in such a wonderfully childlike fashion that is also um compelling to adults and so i think that um this is really um and i i don't know i've never lost my love for frankenstein i've devoted i mean i basically um pitched the column that i do at bloody disgusting because i wanted to write about this movie um and then um i have been writing a series on it over the past year now um, that I've just been doing deep dives into um, all sorts of Frankenstein stuff, including all the universal movies and doing hammer now. Um, So I, I just, this sparked my love for not just Frankenstein, but for horror in general. um, And it's never gone away. Oh, yeah. Well, what you just said, too, at like 70 minutes, it blazes by. Mm-hmm. Like, there are a lot of lessons that I think modern films could take from this movie still. Like, movies that are like are an hour and 50 minutes long that feels like they would be masterpieces if they were cut down to like 90 minutes or oh, yeah. an hour and 40. Like, I'm a big proponent of either like cut it to 90 or go three hours plus. Like, I see an hour and 50 minutes and I get mad. I just feel like that's my least favorite runtime. But there is like no fat on this movie whatsoever. And it there's nothing that feels like it's missing. I don't feel like it needs anything else. Like it's a perfect story. So Garrett, for yourself, like when were you first introduced to like the Frankenstein's monster? Um, in a lot of ways, it was actually reversed uh, in kind of what Brian was saying in that I was introduced to young Frankenstein first and later found Frankenstein. Uh, my parents showed me young Frankenstein around, you know, the Halloween season. Halloween time is sort of a, a more PG, you know, child friendly version of Frankenstein. And then, you know, later when I was, uh, you know, a bit older, uh, they, they let me watch this. And this is a yearly watch for me. It's one of my all-time favorite horror films. I still watch it every Halloween uh, to the day. Um, it's one of the great horror icons. Uh, it's it's somebody that I think, uh, as a character, as a film, as a novel, just has shaped the horror genre in so many multifaceted ways that it is, in a lot of ways, sort of like the... Um, one of the horror grandfathers, like maybe the godfather of horror, so to speak, would be Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster in that story. And it's so fascinating the way that the literature was able to shape the horror genre and the film was able to do it in a really similar way. This movie gave a sense of identity to uh, 
controversial at the time. It made a career out of Boris Karloff, uh, and it really changed the trajectory of horror films, uh, you know, for audiences, um, as well as uh, this horror fan right here. Yeah. Excellent. And how about yourself, Devon? Like, for you, you know, because I'm looking at our crew, we're all different ages. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm probably the oldest of the crew. And I wonder, like, I always wonder, like, do the universal monsters, like, still resonate with persons that are, like, in their 20s? No, they're early to mid-20s. Like, what was your introduction to Frankenstein or the universal monsters, like, in general? Yeah, it's, like, it's kind of hard to pin down because I can't exactly remember the first time that I saw Frankenstein or Dracula. Um, you know, it, it just kind of feels like they've always been there, you know, uh, yeah. because of not only the, the film's legacy, but just their iconography through other films. So, like, honestly, I'm sure I probably saw, like, you know, the version of Frankenstein's monster and Van Helsing before I watched uh, this original Frankenstein. Um, but, <laughs> um, and, and I, you had made a note in there about being monster kids growing up. And uh, the only way that I was was uh, through the underrated uh double feature of uh the alvin the chipmunks uh universal monster movies uh they had uh, meet uh frankenstein and meet uh the wolfman uh both fantastic uh you know uh, with their frankenstein version even still tapping into a lot of those same themes of empathy to teach children uh that you guys were mentioning so uh so i've always just been kind of fascinated with how malleable this story and idea is and premise to where we have gotten so many different renditions and versions of them, uh, exploring different themes, but still kind of keeping the same core as well. Um, it, so, so for me, um, I I'm just kind of more fascinated with like the 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 idea as a as a concept in general more than like kind of um, gravitating towards the monster as a creature. Because as far as uh, the monsters go, he's not my fave, but I do like him though. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So for me, like I grew up like watching the creature double feature movies on like channel 56 in Boston, like every Saturday afternoon and like folks like Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr. and Bela Lugosi, they weren't like these long dead stars of yesterday. Like they were like just with me. I'm like, oh, I thought they were still around. Like I didn't realize that these movies were super, super old. And like my love for these monsters was something that I got from my dad. Like he passed down a love for the Universal monsters as well as things like the Three Stooges and Jackie Gleason and the Honeymooners and the Marx Brothers. He passed those things down to me. So like growing up, like as a a young kid, like every Saturday I'd sit down and usually there'd either be like a Universal monster movie on and very often it was either Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein or Ghost of Frankenstein or it'd be like one of the Hammer movies. And then I would try to get my hands on anything I could read. And I actually, I have a book too. And this is not the one that I grew up with, but I ordered and I'll have to post pictures. It's called Things You've Always and Brian, we have the same thing. <laughs> thing I think we, because Brian, you and I talked about this on Psychoanalysis. We did. We yeah. have the same book. So it's like this book, Things You've Always Wanted to Know About Monsters But Were Afraid to Ask. And it's like a Q&A literally about 
Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman and the Mummy. And it's like, what are the electrodes from Frankenstein's neck? And then it would answer, who is the most fashionable monster? Like, why don't people just run from the Mummy if he acts so slow? Right. Uh, and that it's just, yeah. yeah, it is yeah. literally that book. And I would devour this stuff as a kid. And to me, the Universal Monsters are very much the look of like Halloween like still like you look at the look of this movie and like the way the graveyard looks the way Frankenstein's castle looks and laboratory looks and to me uh, almost a hundred years later that is the look of like Halloween to me that is the look of October and spooky season to me it's never been duplicated like it's never been passed past um i think that that's there's still such an amazing influence of this movie and the story is still reimagined and reinterpreted in so many ways like uh Guillermo del toro is working on his version of frankenstein mm-hmm. which i'm sure is going to be incredible poor things also but just the, came out too which is also sort exactly. of like a riff on more the book but right. also the the influence of the film is yeah. obvious too like your ghost doing his thing. We had Birth Rebirth as well mm-hmm. in the past year. And then Lisa, Frankens- Lisa Frankenstein coming, coming out, out for, yeah. over. So it's a story that um, can be reinterpreted and reimagined. And you can do so much with it that it still resonates in a way that I don't think other classic monsters necessarily mm-hmm. do. Although I still love me like Dracula, I think you can see that like he's a lot harder in some ways to maybe update and make modern. I, I think something that makes this a little timeless is sort of what makes a lot of um, fairy tales timeless, right? Is sort of this vague, out of time, anachronistic quality to it. And something I love about this yeah. film is how it's able to pair this town, which is like seemingly in like the 1600s, like the movie opens mm-hmm. with, you know, this uh, uh, undertaker and there's somebody hanging like, you know, in like in the gallows practice. Practically, but the laboratory is filled with elect, you know, electricity and all these more sort modern by 1930s standards, more of kind of this futuristic metropolis oh. sort of imagery. I think a lot of that makes this film timeless, and that's still why yeah. you're saying that like this movie just looks like Halloween. It is because it is so out of time while also being so gothic and so dramatic. I know. I know. I, um, a lot of people on Twitter have been up in arms about uh, lighting in movies these days, and it's like this is like a prime example of being like, "Look, this is a ninety-year-old movie where they were lighting movies," you know, and that's you know oh, what yeah. gives it that you know such specific atmosphere. And, and I think the Universal Monsters in general is interesting because they kind of are divided into like two separate categories. There's like Dracula and Frankenstein are kind of the more uh, specific lore and mythology based versus like things like a uh, wolfman or invisible man or the mummy kind of uh their adaptations are kind of always uh spun off in uh you know different directions uh versus like dracula and frankenstein are able to kind of keep this you know core 
core story, core value, like embedded mm-hmm. into uh, the mythology of those respective yeah. characters. Well, in a way, this and it kind of was going back to what I was saying is Frankenstein established what was expected of Universal because you had Dracula quite a bit before this. They weren't that recent. Uh, this came uh, quite a bit after that film and really sort of established what the language and the feel of these movies would be. And you still see the impact that this film had on exactly those movies that Devon was talking about. It's the same calendar year as Dracula. Like Dracula is around Valentine's Day of 1931. And then by December, um, by December, like this is being really, they just churned these out. Like it probably felt like a long time, um, but it's a long time between sequels. Like you have like a four year gap between your two Frankensteins and then a massive gap I think the Wolfman is at 1941. 41. Or, yeah. yeah. And there are reasons for that that we'll talk about during the Son of Frankenstein episode. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> I can. But there are reasons for those big gaps um, that are yeah. kind of fascinating. Yeah. But I think that, you know, why it, it feels like, and we'll talk about it when we talk about the look of this film, it feels like there has been a massive shift in just how movies are made and the look of these movies. Like a whole era has passed in terms of like how Dracula looks versus how Frankenstein looks. It just feels like night and day, like Todd Browning's Dracula mm-hmm. and James Wales, Frankenstein. They don't, look like they belong to the same era of movie Maybe that's why I'm thinking whatsoever. that they came out so, you know, different because I mean, they look sure, like they were made yeah. 10 years after the yeah. other. Oh, absolutely. I can't, can't agree more with that statement. You look at the opening of Dracula and it looks like a silent picture, mm-hmm. right? And you look at the opening of this and it's like the scale and the scope of it is just gorgeous. So, All right, so we are going to talk a bit about the background of this movie and how it got made. And I think it's like a really kind of like fascinating look at, you know, how this movie came to be. Because it kind of was like jerry-rigged out of a lot of different parts. It was Frankenstein, if you will. Absolutely it was. Um, Obviously, we have the novel Mm -hmm. is, you know, the beginning of it all, of course. Um, And... I, I got to admit, I'm not that well-versed on the novel. Uh, I've, I've, I've read it a couple of times, but I've never unpacked it, you know, in the same way that others have, you know. I've read it at way too young an age to understand it. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, oh, I'll read this after seeing the movie when I was a kid. And it flew over my head. And I've read it a couple times since. And I think I need to re- read it again so i won't i'll just mention a couple factoids about it here very brief but this is not meant to be like an analysis of the novel it's considered like the birth of science fiction like that's one of the things it's written by mary shelley she writes this as a young teenager and she essentially like comes up with the story almost on a dare like it's her and lord byron and percy shelley who she'd later marry Like they're sitting around like a manor. It's a huge thunderstorm. And they're like, they don't have PlayStation 5 at the time, (laughs) uh, which is a bummer. Like they can't, you know, sit around playing Spider Man 2, 
which is a really fun way to pass the time, by the way, and why I was kind of like late in finishing my notes because uh, I started playing a ton of Spider-Man 2. Yeah, my son got that for Christmas. It's so, so good. Oh, yeah. my God. It's so good, um, which is what I'm going to do after this. I might play for an hour before I go to bed. And Well, they're sitting around during a thunderstorm, and they're like, let's see him come up with like the best ghost story. And I believe like Lord Byron comes up with what would become like Vampire. Uh, and Shelley comes up with what would become Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. It's considered the birth of science fiction. It's very different from the film, like what she comes up with. For one, yeah. like how the create the monster is created. Who knows? Like science. Uh, it's it's kind of in the in spot. the novel it's just it's not really discussed i mean it's just sort of like talks about you know going to metal, medical school and mm-hmm. uh, you know finding parts and from graveyards and from you know mm-hmm. charnel houses things like that and putting them together yeah. uh, but the creation there's no creation scene in the movie the or in the or in the novel i'm sorry the monster just opens his eye yeah. At one point. And it's like a milky yellow eye. Right. And like salad. The description skin. is real. Right. Yeah. It's very monstrous. Yeah. But the monster is like much more intelligent. Uh-huh. He comes out like more of a fully formed man. But like uh, Victor Frankenstein is immediately repulsed by him and rejects the monster. And it essentially becomes like a revenge story. It's the yep. monster trying to get his revenge on his creator who has rejected him. And Bride of Frankenstein borrows elements of the novel, but even then it's not necessarily a very faithful retelling of the story in any way. But the novel's a hit. It's published in January of 1818. Uh, it's written through a lot of tragedy for Shelley. Her firstborn dies in infancy in 1816, just as she begins writing it. Her second child dies just as the novel is being published. So like the novel, like there's a very somber tone to the novel. And I think that that is informed in the writing of it and the tragedy she suffers uh, with the loss of her children. It was also first published anonymously uh, because uh, (laughs) a woman writing uh, a novel was especially a novel like that was not considered scandal. proper. Yeah. Right. It would be a scandal, um, mm-hmm. but Absolutely. it's a huge hit. Like it's yep. an immediate hit. It's adapted to the stage like dozens of times, like even within her lifetime, it becomes mm-hmm. like a, a adapted to the stage uh, and becomes like in a massive hit. It's published many times over. And I think it's like the by 1828, like her name is on. Yes, the it book. is. Like people know who she is. And she writes a famous uh, f- like forward to it um, where she talks about her hideous progeny going forth into the world. And it's mm-hmm. sort of a famous thing that she wrote yeah. uh, in that later version. But it's it's one of the earliest like horror movies like it's also Mm -hmm. like before the 1931 james whale movie there are a few adaptations to the screen of frankenstein and brian you can speak with much greater detail to this like you've written about this sure sure yeah um the the first version um was of course the edison version uh which was um 
It released in 1910. It was thought lost for a long time. There was one image of the monster that was kind of published everywhere. But um, in the 90s or the 80s, I believe, it was discovered uh, in just someone's personal collection. Uh, it's Mm -hmm. It's about 12 minutes long, so a single reel. And um, it's an interesting sort of curiosity. Um, It's very stagey, as those very early films were, of course. Um, There's a lot of mirrors and sort of this idea that the monster and the creator are two sides of the same coin or mirror images of each other. Um, The monster's created through sort of a magical process. And that's sort of a theme that goes through a lot of these early films. Uh, There's a lost film uh, called Life Without Soul um, that, you know, Frankenstein fans would love to get their hands on. Um, (laughs) So there's that. Uh, The nice thing about Frankenstein was by this point, it had, it was in the public domain. It didn't have the problems that Dracula had, Mm -hmm. you know, when you, you know, Murnau went to make Dracula, he had to change it and he still got sued. Um, you know, that wasn't an issue here. So there's a lot of freedom in these early versions. And I think that some things that gained inspiration uh, that from the novel, but also sort of looked forward to Wales film um, are the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, Metropolis, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, and especially um, Der Gollum, or how he came into the world. Uh, so the Gollum, you especially see, there are several things, um, like he wears these really big boots. Uh, he's very, the Gollum is big and, you know, sort of moves a lot like Karloff moves in uh, the, the 31 film. Um, there's a, even a scene with a little girl um, giving him an apple, I think. Um, and there's the angry mob, all kinds of things that sort of find their ways into the, uh, the 31 film. And whale was a fan of this film and of yeah. Metropolis and a Caligari. Uh, there's even a shot uh, in the shot of Elizabeth laying backward on her bed that is mm-hmm. lifted like directly from Caligari. Um, so, and, and, and the, when the monster comes in through her window, it's very much like Cesare coming in through the, the window of, of, of that, of the woman as well. Um, Before Pierce designed the makeup mm -hmm. with Wales input, uh, and before Pierce came up with that iconic makeup, the look of Frankenstein was more golem-esque. Like that was one of the problems with it is like, it was hard to get a performance and it looked more like caked on, not, not what we would recognize now as like Frankenstein's monster. Clay like, uh, has sort of a fame. If you, you know, you can Google the image. Uh, it's got sort of a broad head and it was actually played Sphinx. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And it's sort of, um, it was played by the director. Um, Mm -hmm. so, which is an interesting little tidbit. Um, it's an interesting film. And I think, you know, for, if you're, you know, sort of a a movie geek like me, you know, looking at some of those really old, uh, you know, the silent era stuff, uh, that inspired this film is kind of cool to take a look at. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think the laboratory set of Metropolis, um, informs Mm -hmm. the lab set in Frankenstein. Um, it's things like that. So, and we would see like Metropolis would have a further reach, like in the next film, like the 
Elsa Lancaster's yes. design as mm-hmm. the bride, like was very much inspired by like the female, the Maria, yeah, yeah the of, robot, of yeah, Metropolis. yeah, for so sure. Let's see how that movie had like such a far, like reach, but it was Kenneth like I think Kenneth Strick, Strick Fadden is his right. name, yeah. Okay. And it's interesting that those um, pieces of equipment were used all through the series and were eventually uncovered and used again in Young Frankenstein, which right. is a lot of fun. It's the exact right. same equipment. Because he just had them in his garage. He it? did. And I love oh, that. And they actually worked and they actually sparked and they actually yep. did all this crazy stuff. Yeah. And so I mean, it's that great. became the iconic look. Like when you think of like, well, what Absolutely. does like a mad scientist lab look like it's like oh you would think of like frankenstein and bride of frankenstein and i love yeah. that mel brooks is like i need it to look like the original frankenstein it's like well just call the dude up he still he still has these the equipment yeah and they worked yeah. can we talk a little bit about because this is the story of creating frankenstein isn't just about Karloff and isn't just about james whale but i think it's very much the story of like universal studios and uh carl i'm going to probably mispronounce it but carl lamell jr yeah it's lemley is how it's yeah um yeah carl lemley and carl lemley jr that's an interesting story uh (laughs) because uh lemley senior brought i mean he's one of the pioneers Mm -hmm. really of of hollywood i mean one of the first to get out there and if i'm unless i'm mistaken universal is the oldest still existing studio um and the lemley's lost control of it in the 30s but in the mid 30s but these early years um the 20s were very fruitful for them um, with f- things like Phantom of the Opera and uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which are sort of precursors to the Universal, universal Monsters. But, um, you know, also like Eric von Stroheim films, you know, like Foolish Wives was made there, things like that. Um, so it's a, it was such an important studio right from the beginning um, and apparently gave... Lemley senior, the confidence to say, Hey junior, why don't you take it? Well, that's what <laughs> I, from what I could gather from reading about Lemley senior is he was very much like a nepotism guy. Like yeah. he basically, he wanted to he, yeah, he basically would like give roles to everybody in the family. Like if you were like the second cousin twice removed, like you would become a producer on the universal lot. So and he didn't just give this studio to his son when he became like a right mature age. Like I think when Lemley Jr. is like 21 years old, yeah, he becomes, yeah, he gets the, he gets. Um, it's his birthday do, 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 gift, as I recall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He becomes like the whole movie studio. He's the head of production at age 21 years old. He gets a studio as a gift and it's right coming at a time it's 1928 so lemley jr is basically put in charge at 21 of transitioning universal away from silent pictures towards talky pictures and i had a note here like lemley senior was so famous for or known for like giving out jobs to family it was such a known thing that there was a poet ogden nash he penned like a two-line tribute to him saying like Uncle Carl Lemley had a very large family. 
And it's not exactly Robert <laughs> Frost, but I thought that was really cute. It is funny. What yeah. can you say about Junior and like how he ran Universal Studios and his importance uh, to the studio in the early 30s? Well, it's a mixed bag uh, because he he was the his brainchild was, hey, let's do All Quiet on the Western Front, mm-hmm. which was a huge success. And it was um, the Universal's only Best Picture winner. Uh, there might be another one since then, but for a long time, it was Universal's only Best Picture winner. Um, it's an extraordinarily important movie in talking cinema to have a sweeping war epic like that. But um, and so the good side—that's one of the good things. Another good thing was he—he pushed for Dracula. He said, um, we should make these movies. Um, and there's a, a phrase from Lemley senior that said, you know, none of us wanted to do it. Um, it's morbid. We don't want to do it. Um, and people don't want that sort of thing is what right. he said. And Lemley junior says, yes, they do pop and I'll show you. And Lemley senior had to admit he showed us, he showed us all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is, this is coming like right at the two years into the Great Depression. Yep. You know, half the country is out of work, you know, and, and movies are considered like one of the few inexpensive indulgences that people can mm-hmm. partake in. Like movies are like they're like a nickel yep. to go to. So we hear like Universal is, you know, hemorrhaging money like the year before Dracula comes out. Universal lost like $2 million as a studio. And you think like, oh, that's nothing. Like that is like the catering budget for a week on a Marvel movie. But in 1930-30, that is like a substantial amount of money. Like that can put a studio under and out of business. Yeah. And frankly, the only thing that kept the lights on between 1931 and 1936 when it was bought out were the monster movies because uh, Lemley's on the bad side. He, uh, he was bad with money. He would, uh, he would hold like musicians on retainer on a movie that was Mm -hmm. stalled in pre-production for months and pay them the whole time. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are just sort of ridiculous uh, sums of money and things like that. Um, There are just various stories like that, that he was, yeah, he had these huge successes, but the just the way he would hemorrhage money that this faster than it was coming in um, was really a problem uh, with him. And so it's no wonder they just lost control of that. Yeah. It spun out of his hands, um, and <laughs> they, but they were kind of backed into a corner. I mean, it's yeah. seniors like, what can I do? Because you know? they're churning out like tens of movies a year. So mm-hmm. as successful as like a Dracula, a Frankenstein, a Bride of Frankenstein, an Invisible Man are, they have like tens of movies that are like losing money hand over fist. Yeah, including a few can't... of James Whale's movies. Yeah. You know, uh, that he's making in between yep. these tentpole mm-hmm. films that yeah. we know today. How... Why did Dracula resonate so much with audiences early in 1931? Like, what was it that connected? Why did audiences connect with Lugosi and the tale of... Because, I mean, I watch Dracula now, and it feels like 
especially compared to later Universal monster movies. Like, I don't particularly love that movie. I think Lugosi gives an excellent performance. I think Dwight Fry gives an excellent performance. But it feels so stagey and Mm -hmm. so much like a a bad silent movie at times that I have a hard time connecting with it now. Yeah, it's interesting watching that movie now uh, to put yourself in the shoes of (laughs) the audience at that time. But um, you got to remember, talkies were still kind of a novelty. Mm -hmm. And there weren't really horror movies of this kind before this. The American talking horror film is different from the German expressionist horror film, for example. Uh, Britain was not making them at all. Um, So there just wasn't, this just wasn't there. It wasn't something that people um, had experience with. And so to see, it's, it's interesting that three of the top 10 movies of 1931 were horror films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frankenstein's number three, Dracula number six, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from Paramount was 10. So that that's crazy. You know, I mean, and those are, when you, when you think about, um, you know, just, I think it was just the novelty of it at first. It was like, I, 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 I got to admit, Hey, I like this kind of story. I like hearing ghost stories. So now I can see it in the cinema. Ooh, that's, that's cool. And mm-hmm. look, you know, and, and at the time there were no age restrictions either. There was no rating system. So you have kids digging it all the way up to grownups, um, enjoying it as well. And I think that uh, is something to be said. And like you said, inexpensive entertainment costing a nickel to go to uh, pass the time and escape from the world for a while. Mm -hmm. And we know that, Hey, people like, like the thrill. And so I think that's part of it. You know, and look in Dracula does do big business for universal. It turns in a profit of about, 700,000, which again, at the time, tickets cost 25 cents. So -hmm. when you translate that into modern numbers, I mean, you're looking at a picture that would probably have done maybe like half a billion. I mean, I don't have like the calculator. I I wouldn't either. Yeah. It's, it's big business and it makes a star out of Bella Lugosi. Like, and they did not want Lugosi to play Dracula initially. Like they were looking for anybody else Uh, And he had made that role. He had played it on stage. He'd made it his own. He was famous for it on stage, but they, he had to fight tooth and nail, no pun intended (laughs) to get that role. And he made it, he owned it and he was made, it made him a huge star. So they initially say like, well, of course, like our next big monster movie, our next big horror movie, we're going to do Frankenstein. Right. We're going to make Bela Lugosi the star, right? Yeah, well, here's the, as my understanding, Robert Flory, um, the who was the original director um, attached to Frankenstein, um, was given the opportunity to pitch some ideas, and he pitched The Invisible Man, and he pitched Frankenstein, and there's one other that's escaping me right now. Uh, maybe it was Murders in the Room Morgue. And so... Which that's the one he would go on that's to the do. one he ended up making, yes. Um and uh, it was a flop. Um, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get through it. I started to watch it, yeah. and it, I'm like, I got ten minutes in, and I'm like, nope. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a rough one. Um, but uh, Invisible Man was sort of ruled out because the special effects would be mm-hmm. too much uh, to deal with at the time. Um, so, 
so Flory was kind of given the go ahead on Frankenstein. Um, and he and um, Garrett Fort uh, wrote a script based on Peggy Webling's play that had been revised by John L. Balderston, who had also revised um, for American stage, the Dracula script. Um, and so they, um, they, so it's based on the stage adaptation. And the Dracula stage play is what Universal had based yes. the Dracula film on. So there's a precedent for this. It seems like this is the right way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And to their credit, if you read, um, I, I haven't read the script itself, but I've read sort of a synopsis of it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty close to the final film. It's not that different. Um, there was another um, sort of final polish on it uh, after uh, Flory lost the project, which we'll get to in a minute, but um, it's pretty much the same script uh, with just a few changes, uh, particularly to the monster. Now, Bela Lugosi assumed that he was going to be playing Dr. Frankenstein. Yes. And so because of that, um, and then to their credit, Garrett Ford and Robert Flory thought he was too. And so they wrote the script with that in mind. And so they sort of shoved the monster to the side a little bit, kind of said, and just sort of reduced him to the grunting oaf that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, Lugosi complained about, right? Um, and Lemley said, no, he's the monster actor. He's going to play the monster. And then... Um, Lugosi was not happy at all about that idea. Um, and he was given, um, he, he was just like, no, forget it. <laughs> um, but he also needed to work. He yeah. was also notorious for hemorrhaging money. Uh, Lugosi was, and, um, he, he was, was never able to really parlay, his the iconic status of Dracula into leading man status. And partially no. he was older when he played Dracula. Like he's in his fifties yep. when he plays Dracula. And also like that Hungarian accent, like that thick accent yes. that he can't shed makes it, it's very limiting the kind of roles that he's going to be able to play. Well, absolutely. And you know, he um, opted out of Frankenstein after uh, well, there's sort of, um, this is sort of devolved into legend, uh, so I'll try and sort it out as best I can. But um, Robert Flory was getting in some trouble with the studio brass, uh, so he took it upon himself to shoot some test footage of mm-hmm. the creation scene. Um, apparently, Edward Van Sloan was in it, um, as was... Uh, I, I, the, I, the doctor is escaping me. I do not think it was Colin Clive at that point because Whale brought him on. Whale brought him on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, I'm, that's escaping me at the moment. Um, but actually, it might have even been uh, Van Sloan who was sort of put in as a temp character, temp actor to play that part uh, for this footage. Um, and so, Lugosi was notorious for not letting Jack Pierce get near him. And he, he insisted on kind of his own makeup. He apparently put on a big wig uh, and sort of just grease paint um, and sort of was looked like the golem. And apparently it, the test footage was 
awful. It is lost. It was laughable. I yeah. heard like studio execs like laughed at it. It was so yeah. bad. According to the language that is used, it made Carl Lemley Jr. laugh like a hyena. Mm-hmm. Um, it was ridiculous, apparently. And um, I don't know if um, they allowed Lugosi to back out to save face or if he just and he just came out and said, no, I turned down the role or if he was fired or what. Whatever happened, he was able to say, I'm not going to do this role after all. And he and Robert Flory were sort of quietly reassigned to um, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Um, Lugosi made a couple other movies in 1932, uh, White Zombie and um, Island of Lost Souls, which is great, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Well worth seeing. Um, But... um, the movie was shelved. And he, he, this is mind boggling to me that a movie was, has gone through all of this stuff by this point and it's still released the same year as Dracula. Yeah. It's not greenlit until after Dracula is successful and it goes through all this process, but it's still made and released by November of the yeah. same year. It, it starts shooting in August. Yeah. It's, it's and it's crazy. in theaters by like October. It's test screening. Yeah. It's just wild. Um, but 70 minute length. 70 minutes, I tell you. Love it. I tell um, you. Studios take note. Here's what I find fascinating. Yeah. Lugosi thinking he would play Dr. Frankenstein. Yes. Him, because Colin Clive lends such a humanity to mm-hmm. the character of Dr. Frankenstein that he's not a villain, that he's a much more... There's more pathos there. There's more tragedy there that he's a more, not necessarily a likable figure, but he's not somebody that you're immediately going to shun that you can understand. There's more empathy for the doctor. I don't think you get that with Lugosi. I think with Lugosi, he's going to bring a much more sinister edge to -hmm. that character in that even without intending to do so, it's yeah. going to come off far more like Peter Cushing. Like Peter Cushing I plays so. Baron Frankenstein like a villain. Yep. And I think like Lugosi's Frankenstein would be villainous. Yeah, I think it would be um, a less nuanced human kind of performance. Mm-hmm. Though I, I, gotta say, I would have loved to see, because Lugosi was one of the most respected actors in Hungary um, mm-hmm. in his day. I w- seeing him act in his original language, in his native language, I think uh, would have been a different experience, f- you know, because he mm-hmm. um, he got so typecast as this horror role, partially because yeah. of that accent, I think. Um, that was just the way movies worked at the time, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he, but he played, he played Jesus in his, yep. in, uh, in, in Hungary. I mean, he, I think he had, um, much without having to worry about the phonetics and the language. I think he was probably able to bury himself in these roles, um, in a much more natural way. Well, what's amazing is Lugosi will not only pop up in the Frankenstein series, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, but he'll pop up multiple times in multiple roles. Like yeah. he'll play Igor in Son of Frankenstein and Ghost of Frankenstein. He'll play the monster 
in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and then he'll return. He won't play Dracula in House of Dracula or House of Frankenstein, both of which feature the Dracula character, but he will return for the second and final time as Dracula uh, in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It is. It's incredible. It's incredible to me. Yeah. That he only played that role twice. Yeah, I mean, in film, I should say, because he played it his whole life um, on, stage. on stage, you know, in various productions. So. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's again, it is just so Flory is removed, um, and also the other thing that is removed in Flory's script, like you said, is that sympathetic portrayal of the monster. So, how does James Whale enter the picture? Well, um, and we'll talk a lot more about Whale's career with Bride of Frankenstein. So for the sake of time for tonight, how does Whale come on board? Well, uh, he he had made a film called uh, Journeys and a war film that was very successful, uh, got him a lot of attention within the studio. uh, And then he was assigned Waterloo Bridge, another war film starring Mae Clark, by the way, Um, and Betty Davis in a small role, very young Betty Davis. Um, And Betty Davis was one of the people considered to play Elizabeth, by the way. Didn't Whale say he could take either Clark or Davis? He's like, eh, I could see either of them in the role. Yeah. He didn't necessarily think Betty Davis, like there was anything special about her. Right. Wow. I, there were a lot of people that thought that that underestimated her though. I think Again. she um I think she made her career on being underestimated, mm-hmm. you know, by people, you know, and proving them wrong, which way to go Betty. Um but I, I just find that uh, really fascinating and he was Lemley said, "Oh, I want this guy to direct Frankenstein." And Whale said he was, um, see here, he was forced more or less against my will, is what he says. Um, and, but then he started to warm to it because it's like, okay, it's not a war picture. So that's got that going for it. It is a classic of English literature. And being an Englishman, um, he, and he infuses all of his movies with a very English sensibility, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and um, he said, he decided I'd try to do something with it uh, to sort of top all thrillers. So this was his opportunity to show them all, you know, with his, you know, with an early film to say, I can do this and I can do it better than Dracula. Um, And he brings with it this sensibility of the um, German expressionist films that he loved that I already mentioned. And those were particularly the Gollum um, mm-hmm. Metropolis and, and Caligari were huge influences on him and this yeah. film. Um, and also his partner, and this is important, uh, his partner, David Lewis. Um, and when I say partner, I mean his partner, as in mm-hmm. his lover. Um, uh, David Lewis made an important point after reading the novel. He said, I felt sorry for the goddamn monster. Yeah, and I think that's critical. That is absolutely you- critical. Yeah. Especially these first two Frankenstein movies. I think that's one of the things that I think unfortunately goes away as the series continues. Uh, It really does. Yeah. And the monster becomes kind of more of a lumbering oaf. In these first two movies, like you really feel, and I think a lot of that is Karloff. Yes. You really feel a tremendous amount of like empathy for the creature. 
Like Absolutely. really, and, 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 you know, I say creature because that is how Karloff liked to That's right. describe the Frankenstein's monster, not as the monster, but as the creature. That's right. And um, he always sort of bristled at the title horror as well. He mm-hmm. preferred terror films. Yes. Um, and there is a distinction there. Yeah. I think there is a distinction between horror. To me, horror are, is a um, things that should not be. You're bristling at things that like don't yeah. have any. And it has a repellent are, connotation yeah. to yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to hold off on discussing Whale's career. Yeah. Absolutely. Until because Bride of Frankenstein is really a James Whale tale Absolutely. more than anything. But I want to talk yeah. more about Boris Karloff here. Mm-hmm. So he's born William Henry Pratt. He's a British national born in Surrey, England in 1887 to a father who's a member of the Indian National Service. His father is a bit of a ne'er-do-well criminal and he abandons his family at a very young age. Uh, Karloff is the youngest of nine children who grew enamored of performing after watching one of his older brothers take up acting. And then Karloff took up after him, although he was considered the black sheep of the family because he never really gave up the performing bug. Like it was kind of considered like, no, you'll just kind of go to school and get a career, whether it's like, working in the factories or the mines or the mills mm-hmm. like, but you're not going to become a performer. Damn it. You know, that's, and he was considered yeah. a black sheep. Well, I think all of them were sort of being pushed towards the political world and, mm-hmm. you know, the business end of things. Um, so, yeah. So Karloff emigrates to Canada in 1909. He takes up odd jobs as a delivery man, a farmhand, a laborer, before he finds work on stage, after he exaggerates his credentials back home. Because, you know, pre-internet, you could kind of do that. You know, the great, he changed his name from William Henry Pratt to Boris Karloff. And I don't quite recall the reason. It's, um, yeah, he's... Now, William Henry Pratt doesn't sound like such a bad stage name, but um, it was, I, I don't know that I can't remember the details of it either, but he felt that it should change. And so um, Karloff, I believe, was a family name somewhere okay. in his history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Boris just sounded cool with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's I'm I'm. Don't throw stones if I'm misremembering that, but it's oh, quite right. possible. <laughs> I, I think that is the reason. Yeah. Um, although he's never like a massive success doing live theater, he gets steady work in between mm-hmm. having to do day labor jobs and like drive. He's, he becomes an early truck driver and delivery yep. person. He helps Beca- build a racetrack. Yeah, he does things like this, but he's still getting steady stage work. And this is going to help him later on. Now, he does start getting early work in silent pictures as early as 1919. Mm -hmm. He's appearing in films as extras. And he is appearing in films like The Lightning Raider and The Mass Rider. But he has no idea where he is. And he tells people, like, I'm in these movies. I'll be damned if I can tell you where I am. Like, my role is so small. I'm an extra. Like, he's making, like, five bucks a day working as an extra, basically. And his primary source of income is working as a laborer. What can you tell me about Karloff's career 
pre-Frankenstein? Like, what is he known for, if anything at all? Well, he, in these early days, he's playing a lot of villains. One of the things Mm -hmm. that um, has really only been examined more recently is that he was uh, Anglo-Indian. So he, but he did his best to hide that fact because racism, you know, (laughs) he was, he was bullied as a child for having darker skin than his peers back in Surrey. Yeah. And even in his, uh, I read in uh, Christopher Lee's autobiography, uh, Christopher Lee and he were quite good friends in uh, Karloff's. Yeah, they were neighbors. That's right. Uh, In their later days, uh, in Karloff's later days, I should say. Um, And he would say things like, oh, I have to stay out of the sun because I'm so dark. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, unfortunately, the nature of Hollywood and the industry. Um, But he was often, because of that, cast as villains who were of various ethnicities, (laughs) another unfortunate aspect of the times. So uh, he played a lot of Arabic characters, a lot of Native American characters, but but they were cast as villains. Played a lot of like yeah. Chinese characters. So yes, he, he would, did. Which he played is... them all the even after Frankenstein. He was yeah. playing uh, Fu Manchu, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> things of that which nature. Which is bizarre. Like, absolutely. That's one of my blind spots, and I'm afraid to watch it. <laughs> I know. I'm afraid I'm going to enjoy those movies and. <laughs> Uh, well, Christopher Lee, bad. Christopher Lee did the same thing. He he ended up, and that was you know what twenty years later he was playing mm-hmm. the same same kinds of thing. Thirty years later, yeah. um, so anyway, um, I I think that uh, the the key moments though is uh, he got a he got a job. There's a, this is lovely story of a chance encounter with Lon Chaney Senior where he had a short car ride with him and Cheney just gave him the advice to just never give up and just to keep going mm-hmm. and to keep auditioning. And eventually it'll happen. Uh, if the, the right thing will come to you. Um, and it wasn't it all that. Mm-hmm. As I say, he tells Karloff, like, just whatever you do, make sure you stand out. Do it differently. That's right. That's right. From exactly. Else. Yeah, you have to do something that stands out and is different. And and Cheney, again, I mean, like Karloff and Cheney kind of have a lot in common. I mean, they're not traditional leading man looking kind of people, um, but they became you know some of the biggest stars, and they were able to play in these leading roles character parts, and that was sort of a rare thing, you know. And it still is, of course. Uh, but I, I think that the big shift comes when he gets a job playing in a stage version of a show called The Criminal Code. And he happens to um, catch the attention of, well, two people that would be important. One of them was, of course, Howard Hawks, who cast the film version and made the film version. And he is fantastic in the criminal code it, well worth watching really good movie um if you've ever seen karloff's late movie targets uh that's the movie that he and peter bogdanovich are watching in the in the motel room it's in a great scene where they're talking about howard hawks and talking about that movie um and another person was david lewis who saw this stage version and tucked that performance in the back of his mind and later mentioned it to James Whale. Um, Now, 
I, so that's the criminal code, I think, is the breakthrough. Whether that's the movie that James Whale saw, it's hard to say. We don't know um, what exactly happened. There's this great, beautiful, romanticized legend that uh, James Whale went into the commissary and, oh, mm-hmm. saw Boris Karloff and said, you're the guy. Uh, but that is probably not what happened. Well, uh, well, which is Boris tells say. that story. Yeah. Boris says, like, you know, and Boris says I he was upset because, like, I'm there in a nice suit. Yeah. You know, I'm all dressed up. I feel like I'm looking really good. Mm-hmm. And Whale says, like, I would like you to play the, the lead in my role. I want you to play <laughs> the monster. And Karloff was like, what the fuck, man? You know, just <laughs> yeah. like, not like, I don't think Karloff ever said a dirty word. I doubt it. <laughs> in his life. Maybe, um, maybe when he was uh, uh, arguing with Lemley over right. pay, but that's about it. <laughs> The other reason, like, Karloff is starting to get this notoriety in these roles, like, as films are transitioning from silent to talking, he's starting to get these roles because he's had all the stage experience. Yes. And all these other actors that, like, have never spoken on film. And he has a wonderfully distinct voice. Oh, yes. I mean, if you don't know Boris Karloff for Frankenstein, you know him is the narrator in the role of the Grinch, which is probably to be honest, what he's best known for. Oh yeah. That's his, yeah, that's signature. In some ways that's his greatest role. Mm -hmm. Um, though I, um, my, my personal favorites are Frankenstein monster. Uh, his role is Byron Orlock in, in, uh, targets. Mm -hmm. And then, um, in the body snatcher, the role he plays in the, yeah, is remarkable. So good. After watching the Karloff documentary, that was like that was a blind spot for me. Oh, that was the first Karloff movie I put on, and he's so good. Like he yeah. should have been nominated for. It's that good. Yes, it's that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Val, it's it's a brilliant, brilliant performance. Yeah, uh, pure evil. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pure evil, and he's um, brilliant. And, and a, yeah couple great scenes with Lugosi. Yeah, that's movie. right. Like there's probably a couple like really wonderful turns from Lugosi there. Yeah. Uh, as well. Now yeah. I want to note that even though Karloff is like quote unquote star of this movie at the top of the show, you know, I said a question mark as yeah. the monster, like Karloff doesn't get billed as the monster it's left as question marked because he was kind of like they wanted to have a little quote unquote mystery around it. Yeah. But Karloff is also such a non entity at this time. He's not even invited to the premiere of the movie. That's right. Like he's really like is thought of like at the time as a stunt person just doing this, but he, the role, like once the film is released, the, his performance is so well regarded. Yeah it launches him and like he's going to go on a run playing these characters in this role yeah. like it, for the next 10 years like he it's he's top billed in the next in the next movie it is like Karloff as and he's receiving top billing in Bride right. of Frankenstein that's right um he became Karloff the uncanny and all yeah. kinds of things during that post Frankenstein mm-hmm. period um but so here, al- alternatively yeah, and alternatively, you know, the story of his discovery um, that I have also read from Karloff is 
he got, you know, he was in the commissary and he got, you know, noticed that James Whale wants you to come to his office. Mm-hmm. And so he went and met with James Whale. The two got along quite well, uh, sort of bonded over um, being British and mm-hmm. in America and um, sort of, they're both sort of gentlemanly kinds of guys. And, um, and they, they got along quite well for a while, <laughs> you know? Um, and, I don't feel like I think that they're by the time they get to bride, the sort of bad blood had passed between them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll talk about that later in the discussion. Yeah. Um, but uh, so so there's a lot of uh, what's what's so fun about a lot of these discussions of these old movies is there's sort of a legend around all of them. Yeah, you know, we don't know. Like we don't know gone. for sure. Everyone's got yeah. a different story and they're all gone yeah. and they can't we can't corroborate stories mm-hmm. um, anymore. Uh, so you just kind of have to rely on right. what they said at various times in their careers. Well, I don't know if we're talking about Frankenstein today, if it's not for the creative input of Jack Pierce. Who, Absolutely. After like following in the footsteps of Lon Chaney Sr., the original Man of a Thousand Faces, Pierce is probably, you know, like Rick Baker has talked about him, Rob Poteen has talked about Absolutely. him, Tom, mm-hmm. like as like they've all drawn inspiration from Oh, Tom Jack Savini, Pierce. you know, makes sculptures of, of yeah. these makeups, you know, because he's just so fascinated with uh, Pierce's work, you know. Mm-hmm. Can we? And I think in, that the makeup job that Pierce does on Karloff here for Frankenstein is the greatest makeup job of any creature or monster in Hollywood history. Absolutely. Not because it's super complex, but because it looks beautiful, it looks terrifying, mm-hmm. but it still allows Karloff to give an actual nuanced empathetic performance that you're typically not going to get if all you want to do is like scare the pants out of a, an audience like you can actually get a real performance yeah but create something that is still wondrous can you talk a little bit about how pierce along with like the guidance of whale and the input of karloff like came up with mm-hmm. this design well uh there's again these are sort of everyone you know, as they say, success has many fathers, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so here you, you have variously Jack Pierce saying it was all me. You have James Whale saying, oh, I came up with the design. Um, you have uh, Karloff saying, well, just kind of built it up off my face. <laughs> you know, uh, so there's lots of different ideas now. Um, I, I, there's no doubt that this went through a lot of different iterations before they finally got to the one Mm -hmm. that's in the movie. Um, There's even uh, photos of a previous version where he's got like these, um, these like big staples in his head and they sort of, yeah, it's on one of the posters even. Um, But there's an actual photo of it as well. But um, there were sketches and drawings that uh, whale made of Karloff's face uh, he was quite a good artist, and he just sort of made the r- ridges on his face a little bit more prominent, bony, um, and Pierce took that into consideration. You know, he had studied lots of anatomy books and stuff like that in preparation for this. And w- what you end up with is this, you know, that wonderful sort of square head idea, um, the big bony ridges, um, the scar, the bolts, 
um, you just put it together and it's just perfection. The way the hair sits on his head. Yeah. Um, that one sort of clamp that comes over the stitches, which, uh, according to everybody, um, Pierce very carefully made sure those stitches were exactly the same every time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I guess the bride's stitch, you know, he spent hours, he just would mm-hmm. so meticulous with that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but same with Karloff's makeup here. And um, it was all overlaid with a sort of, for this movie at least, sort of a blue green. Um, grease paint that made it look just dead white. Um, so it would read that way. So, um, and I always been sort of greenified every, you know, over time, but, um, for this movie, if you actually saw the makeup in color in real life, it would have been more like blue, which is really weird to think of. Um, but, uh, Karloff did make two contributions. One of them, uh, they after they had, they spent a lot of time. They spent several weeks working on getting the makeup right for the screen test because they really wanted to impress the brass and say, "If we're going to Karloff, yeah, Karloff didn't get the role until he right. screen tested. Like he had a right. handshake agreement, but they mm-hmm. were still like, I think Lamelli was like." no one knows who Karloff is. I need a star. Like even after he offered him the role, he was like trying to back out of it and maybe go back to Lugosi and Lugosi was having second thoughts. Like, how am I going to turn this, this surefire hit down? Right. Like Karloff was kind of left lurching a little bit. It wasn't until this like screen test when you saw Karloff in the makeup that they were like, Mm -hmm. okay, this is the right direction. Yeah. Uh, so two of the last contributions were Karloff said, my eyes look too alive, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, Pierce took some mortician's wax and put it on his eyelids. So his eyes are actually weighed down. Um, and then he took out his uh, bridge work on the right side of his mouth. And so he has sort of this extra cadaverous look, um, that is not there in any of the other films because yep. Karloff had his teeth fixed. He could afford yeah. to have his teeth fixed. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, and he sort of darkened that side of his mouth. And 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 as it goes on in later, but it's just that it still remains until it's just sort of like a, a dot by, mm-hmm. by the time Lugosi plays the character. It's yeah. pretty funny. And, um, and poor Boris, like this is like five hours of makeup mm-hmm. every day. And then two to three hours to take off. And they're yeah. like peeling skin off and leaving like well, chemical burns. And it's. Yeah. Well, the stuff was made out of, of uh, cotton, uh, cheesecloth and collodion. Collodion yes. is if you look up what collodion is, it's nasty stuff. It's it's yeah. like it it was using like surgeries and stuff like that. It it it, uh, it hardens very it very rigidly, um, but it's solventy and yeah. you probably don't want it near your eyes, <laughs> oh, which is what they were doing, yeah. obviously. Um, but that's the materials they had. Um, and uh, Pierce was very reluctant to move on to things like, you know, rubber. <laughs> he yeah. used he used a rubber head and bride and beyond. But uh, here, I mean, yeah. he built up that head every day. And that was brows and everything. And it took hours. And then taking it off was you had to use like oils and stuff to take it off and Mm -hmm. pry it open to get it off. And Pierce was prickly. Like he was known to not compromise. And even as like makeup techniques evolved, 
like with the Wolfman in particular, they're like, you should be using a mask at this point. He was like, nope, not going to do it. Yeah. And eventually like Universal like cut him loose by the mm-hmm. mid 40s. Like they were in cost cutting mode and he was one of the casualties because he refused to compromise. And other yeah. makeup artists were like, yeah, we can do this. We can give you like 90% of the quality for like a third of the price at this point. You, you know what Jack Pierce's last job was right it was mr ed mr like, ed that is a he was like a yeah. makeup artist on the mr ed show yeah that's right and uh, sadly he, like he got when the he, horse to talk yeah. yeah but sadly when he pa- how i just just <laughs> just the, the the wire to the yeah. lip they oh. gave him that job it sounds like when he passed like sadly like very few people acknowledged him he yeah just like he did not make a lot of i think karloff had a warm absolutely yeah but very few other people did you know Jack if pierce if you watch the boris karloff uh this is your life mm-hmm. he's really doesn't he's not into it at all he does the, not want to be there he does not want to be there he does not want his personal life shared <laughs> mm-hmm. but the one time where he really warms in that whole thing is when he sees jack pierce yeah and, and the two of them just, there's just all smiles and enjoying yeah. each other. It's so wonderful to see and that part. That's one of the great things about Karloff is he never, like Lugosi in some ways would feel very, he was very protective about Dracula, but mm-hmm. also very bitter. Like yeah. that, because he became typecast and like, you know, it's understandable because Lugosi spent a lot of time on Poverty Row, yep. like getting these very like, not well paying roles and like he never got never really got his due after what he did with Dracula where Karloff would go on to do the mummy and the Fu Manchu films and the other Frank and he would go on to have like this amazing career he would go on to work like he credits like Val Luton with like rescuing him after yep. the Frankenstein movies like basically allowing him to act again yep. and then he would become like a television star and he would become a Broadway star like Karloff has this amazing extensive career but he was always very grateful for having the opportunity to play Frankenstein's monster because he knew it's what launched him into Sardom. Like he knew it's what gave him his break. So he was always like felt a sense of like camaraderie and warmth with it. Even like he wasn't in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, but when they asked him to promote it, he was like, I'm happy to promote it. Please don't make me watch the movie, but I'll, (laughs) I'll go on the road and which is a brilliant movie. Yeah. But he's like, I'm happy to help you promote this movie because yeah. he felt a sense of like responsibility yeah. and kinship with the creature. Yeah. I have so much admiration for Boris Karloff. I, yeah. He was intensely private. He was extremely charitable, but he mm-hmm. he never publicized that. No. He would go and visit sick children in the hospitals mm-hmm. dressed as Santa Claus. I mean, he would... Now, would and he, he, he wouldn't tell us. That's right. He'd throw them in likes. Uh, of course, he wouldn't tell anybody that he was doing it. And mm-hmm. it was just, um, he was just a generous, kind mm-hmm. um, man who just wanted to look out for other people. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the Screen Actors Guild, you know, he was a key member of that uh, mm-hmm. in those early days and such an important element. Yeah. 
So super quickly here, because like through the magic of editing, we're actually three hours into this show. We are. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the other major players sure. here. Uh, Colin Clive, a very tragic figure. He would yeah. pass very shortly after the Bride of Frankenstein. But he was like, like Whale brings like with May Clark and Colin Clive, like his own little troop of performers that he was comfortable with. Clive, I think, lends a real pathos to Victor yes. Frank, Henry Frankenstein. He's very handsome. Yes, He was absolutely. also somebody lifelong alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was able to like remain off of the sauce when he was filming Frankenstein. But I think you can sense like there's a real tragedy to the man. And I think that translate, even especially when you watch Bride of Frankenstein, yes. you're looking at a man in decline, mm-hmm. maybe a lot less so here, but some of that wildness definitely translates on screen here. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Clive is such, such a great performer, such a tragedy that we didn't get to see more yeah. of him. Um, Cause boy, he's so good here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, um, I, I think his performance here is maybe even better than it is in bride. Um, and I, just because of that, the laboratory sequence, so he's oh, yeah. just so phenomenal. And I think he maybe gets a little overshadowed by Fessager and bride, but, um, he definitely does. Yeah. But here he's, he's, he's so great and he's, and you just feel his elation, even though you kind of, you have this tug of war going on to love or hate him. And you're, you know, at times for too much of bride, he's like bedridden and feeble. Yeah. Even when he's not in bed, you can sense that feeble. He seems so much smaller in that movie. And here, like Clive is like this really, he's manic at times. He's this large presence. There's this energy to him. Um, the, the the monologue he gives to Waldman about like pursuing the boy, where do the tree buds come from? Like, I right. love that mm-hmm. monologue he gives in the film. Uh, I think it's a wonderful performance. Like, and again, his Henry Frankenstein works so much better, I think, than what you would get from a Lugosi. There's a lot more sympathy with mm-hmm. his Henry than I think you would have gotten with a Lugosi. Yeah. He turns him from being a villain into being someone that's, you know, more ambiguous than that, more complex than that. And um, because of sort of the lack of a, you know, mustache twirling villain in this movie, it just makes the movie richer in my opinion. Yeah. What about Mae Clark? I don't know a lot about her. I know well, that she doesn't come back for Bride. She's no, she does not. She's replaced by a 17-year-old, yeah. Well, she, wild, she was but. quite fond of James Whale, mm-hmm. uh, as I understand. They got along quite well. Um, and uh, she worked with him before. And um, she is probably, outside of Frankenstein, her most famous role is probably in The Public Enemy, where she gets a grapefruit uh, smashed in her face mm-hmm. by James Cagney. Um, that is, a you know, sort of another iconic uh, <laughs> classic movie moment. Um, yeah. So I, I don't have a whole lot to say about Mae Clark, yeah. um, but uh, she kept working all, for a lot of years, yeah. though. She was in movies all the way into the 70s. So She doesn't have a lot to do here. No, she doesn't really. It's just, yeah. Bride of Frankenstein is where Elizabeth has more to do. And it's sort of too bad that she wasn't able to return or 
wasn't wanted to return. I'm not really I, sure. I got to yeah. look into from, that. What, I did some reading and I think she's like, well, these movies are kind of silly, aren't they? Sure. Which, you know, I don't quite agree with, but hey, what do I know? Well, what I did anybody know at the time, though? No. You know? I don't think they thought we would be talking about these movies 90, 90 years something later. years later, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. We have Dwight Fry is the wonderful Fritz coming off like coming off of Renfield in Dracula and then going into Fritz. Like what a year. Yeah. If anything, like it's what's sad is like he is, this is going to make, he is typecast after this in a way he's never really able to kind of get broader roles. And he also dies fairly young. He dies young. He dies riding on a bus, as I understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's (laughs) very tragic kind of story um, with him as well. Um, he's one of those people that I wish I knew more about because he's just so interesting mm. of an actor. Uh, every time he's on screen, I'm happy to see him. He's even in little bit parts in like the invisible man. Uh, and he's got moments uh, later in this series, as I recall, he has sort of a cameo and most, a lot of those other things were that he did outside of this after bride, besides bride and, and these films uh, were uncredited. So, wow, I did not realize that. Yeah, he plays so a he plays a newsman in uh, in The Invisible Man. I so. I don't have anything on John Bowles who plays Victor. <laughs> Empty suit. Kinda, well, the character is sort of that. It's a lot like a David Manners character, or Jonathan Harker, and Dracula. It's just sort of. I think Bowles is a little bit more charismatic, honestly, <laughs> than David Manners. Uh, David Manners is sort of like a black hole of charisma in mm, Dracula, yeah. in my opinion. Oh. Um, but, uh, Bowles at least is a nice looking guy. Um, Who's a worse Harker? Him or, <laughs> or Keanu? Keanu Reeves. Ooh. Um, I, I think, uh, Keanu Reeves. Oh, that's a tough one because that accent is bad. It's a rough accent. And I, I, I love Keanu, but I do uh, too. But I tell you, that's a I, having watched Bram Stoker's Dracula not all that long ago. It's sort of like, I love you, man, but oh, that's that's a, that's a rough one. That's a rough one. So. Um, we have Edward Van Sloan coming off of Dracula as Van Helsing, coming doing double duty as a little narrator, but uh-huh. also playing Doctor Waldeman, and and a surprising twist like killed off midway through the movie. Yeah, and I feel like that has to be kind of like a shock to audiences, like your hero of the previous movie getting unceremoniously murdered by the creature. Yeah. I think that's a scene that kind of, we talked about that, that book, the things that, um, or, or the things that you wanted to know about monsters, Mm -hmm. but there's the picture in there that used to really scare Mm -hmm. me was the picture of the monster laying on the, on the table with its shirt up and, and the scar with Volman mm-hmm. sort of leaning over him. I don't know what it is. was about that. That just really sort of scared me as a kid. And I, I wasn't that scared of the monster, but that shot something about the medical element of it or something just really disturbed me. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think Waldman, uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I think Van Sloan is a, another sort of interesting actor. I think he's really quite good in Dracula as well. He's one of the standouts in Dracula and I like him here. I mean, he's kind of playing the same role, 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's sort of the the voice of reason against the supernatural thing going on out here. Uh, and yep. he's going to destroy the, the creature. Um, but I, I think he's a fascinating actor and a fascinating yeah. character here. So after all this, it's kind of weird the movie tanked like it did. Really <laughs> heard of him. Like yeah. just absolutely just face just... You know, like belly flops at the uh, off box office, right? Well, you think about, okay, I already mentioned it, number three at the box office behind two, uh, Charlie yeah, Chaplin's. That's the bronze. That's second loser. You know? <laughs> second loser. Uh, Charlie Chaplin's City Lights mm-hmm. is number one. Um, and then The Champ is number two. Uh, which is a uh, uh, wrestling or boxing. I can't I think remember. It's a which. Boxing. I think it's boxing. Yeah. Um, I, unfortunately, I haven't seen it. That's one I should see. I think I'd be curious it's to a, see it. It's like remade with Ricky Schroeder. Like <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but um, that is huge for, you know, a low budget throwaway, you know, <laughs> it wasn't, and, it was a $130,000 movie. Yeah. Also, what it meant, like uh, Lamelli Senior, did not want to make this movie. No, and almost like pulled the studio away from his son because he did not want to make this movie. He's like, I don't want to be in the horror business. Dracula was a fluke. Wanted to pull and like got the board involved and like, like yeah. let's not do this. Uh, and Lamelli Junior was like, No, this is a hit. Like we should make this. Like I will stake my job on this being a hit. Like. Yeah. Lamelli Sr. like famously again thought like there was no place for horror at the studio. And ironically, horror saved Universal mm-hmm. over and over and over to this day. Yeah. I mean, you think about Blumhouse releasing all their stuff through Universal. Universal. Uh, you have Jaws in the 70s. Uh, saving their ass. Um, you have the forties coming along and sort of the resurgence of the monster movies, uh, bringing it back. Then you have all those crazy movies like Tarantula and stuff like that mm-hmm. in the fifties. And of course, creature from black lagoon. Um, so, and psycho in the sixties. I mean, yep. so there was just one thing after another that was no one wants to do horror universal, until they, count uh, until, the until they count the money. Yeah. And then it's like, and oh, it's, that's a good idea. After It's all. like Paramount with the Friday the 13th movies. Like, right. They could not distance themselves fast enough from those movies, except for after opening weekend when it was time to collect the till. Right. That's right. Right. That's exactly right. And that's why I kind of love New Line and Bob Shea. Absolutely. Who are like, yeah, New Line, it's the house that Freddie built. Like they never ran away from that. Never. And, you know, yeah, so. even when they got more prestigious, you know, mm-hmm. they were like, yeah, we're, we'd still make horror movies. There we yeah, go. Absolutely. Yeah. So the film premieres in Santa Barbara. Um, and originally Henry dies at the end of this movie. Correct. Mm-hmm. That's right. And but what do they realize? They realize that, Hey, uh, this is going to be a hit. So let's shoot a new ending where we confirm that Henry is alive. They leave it ambiguous. Uh, the, what's in the movie is what's is what how it ended. It ended essentially with the villagers standing around the uh, the windmill burning down, fade to black credits. Um, but uh, they decided 
let's add this little tag. We are going to confirm that he's alive. I think it's kind of funny because um, I don't know. Whale just kind of says, oh, forget about that. And in, at the beginning of Bride, they assume he's dead. <laughs> I yep. just think it's kind of funny. Uh, but, you know, hey, we'll get to that next time. Yeah. So, listeners, before we move on to our movie discussion, this is why you become a patron of the show. You just got an education there from Brian. You got a little film history 101 right there at the cost of zero dollars. So please, I'm going to give a little patron plug right here. Ten second patron plug. Patreon.com slash pot of the pendulum. Not only do you get bonus content, but if that wasn't worth at least two saw bucks right there, <laughs> I don't know what is. All right, listeners. So here's what we're going to do. Because... Our Frankenstein episode, and I can tell you as we recorded today, our Bride of Frankenstein episode wound up being these epic three-hour-plus mega shows before editing. So probably about three hours apiece. And in the interest of sanity, for both uh, myself when it comes to editing and for you, our listener, on your morning commute, we're going to make them both two-parters. So we're going to cut the show here. It feels like a natural point. We've done kind of our overview of like how we fell in love with these monsters and brian and i uh brian in particular covered you know the history uh, of making this movie we'll be back next week with um our discussion of the movie which goes again pretty deep and detailed and garrett and devon will be returning for that discussion because uh, we recorded the episode a little bit out of order so we're going to cut things there so we appreciate that. We'll be doing something very similar for Bride of Frankenstein, which we recorded today, just to kind of give you the give you the give you the idea. But I don't think you're going to be waiting a full week. I think we're going to get part two of this episode up in a few days for y'all. So in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on all the socials and make sure you can get all of your back episodes on our main site at podandthependulum.com. On behalf of Brian, Devon, and our special guest Garrett, uh, thank you so much for checking out part one of our Frankenstein episode. We will be back in just a few days.